0: Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the show that explains physics, the end of the world, future technologies, and let's face it, more or less anything else that makes you go, hmm. We have a special guest on the show today. I'm excited. Are you excited? It's Zach Wienersmith. Zach is the creator of the webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial, which I'm sure many of you already love and enjoy. He also created the Bad Ad-Hoc Hypotheses Festival, where people give ludicrous solutions to genuine scientific problems. We talk a bit about that. And with his amazing wife, Kelly Wienersmith, he hosted a podcast, The Weekly Wienersmith, and wrote a book, Soonish, The Ten Emerging Technologies That Will Improve and or Ruin Everything. So this book deals with the future of space travel, the programmable matter, nuclear fusion, all kinds of emerging technologies, some of which we've discussed in our series on the end of the world and existential risks. Uh, The book's written in a hilarious and informative way, and it deals with the impacts that these technologies will have on society. And we'll touch on just a few of them and the impacts that they'll have on society in the interview. So without further ado, here it is. So first off, Zach, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and also for your career so far, which has provided a lot of joy for a lot of people. So this is mainly a show about the book Soonish, but you're probably most notorious for Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, which is this geeky, delightful webcomic that <laughs> never fails to bring a smile to people's face. And, you know, I, I go to lectures here at Oxford and I like sitting at the back um, and you can see what's on everyone else's screens. And I often look down and I'll see people reading SMBC
1: and things <laughs> like that. So, yeah. It's very flattering. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I also want to highlight you did this podcast, which you hosted with your wife Kelly, the Weekly Winersmith, which is on temporary hiatus, but podcasts are forever. So there's a huge archive there of you guys interviewing lots of scientists. Yes. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, communicating science in such an engaging way for so many people.
1: Well, uh, thank you. And
0: And, uh, alongside that, another thing people should check out is that I wanted to ask about quickly before we get onto the book is the Bad Ad Hoc Hypotheses Festival. Yes, Um, where people come up with these hilariously bad solutions to real world problems. Um, So it's a great event and people can check that out at barfest.com. So is there a nice sort of cinematic story as to how that idea came about and what have been some of your highlights in hosting it?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, there kind of is. I mean, maybe not cinematic, but uh, what happened is I I did a joke. uh, I did a comic um, about an event in the comic. I think it was called something like the, festival of ad hoc, but I don't remember. It was something much more verbose than that already verbose title. Um, but uh, we, it was, it was weird. So we, we, we posted a little thing to Facebook that was like, Hey, have we actually made this event happen? And the, the original version was only like fake bad evolutionary theory. We said, if we, if we made this happen. Would you come? And we got like a shockingly good response. Like, the way Facebook works, usually you only get a response if you post some like some visual shareable thing, and this was just yeah, a, yeah. would Would you come to this? And we got this just huge response, and so a, a friend of mine who's was, who's was formerly at my publisher at the time had sort of ins at MIT. Uh, through the lecture series committee, which is an undergraduate um, group that brings in speakers and shows movies, that sort of thing, and right, right. Uh, uh, they they set us up for uh to my to my shock and horror, they set us up for a 500 seat venue, um <laughs> and because uh, and because I had literally uh, like literally thought maybe 30 50 people would come because it's 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 just it's a very nerdy show. It's not just like like SNBC is nerdy, but this is like next level
0: yeah uh, next level. dorky.
1: Um, and so I thought we would just do like a little cute thing and say, we did it. Um, and then we got 500 seats and we just worked like crazy and we actually sold out 500 seats. And then the morning before the show, I think it was, I got a call from my manager, uh, the show was at MIT and I got a call from my manager that was like, you're not flying to Boston today. And I was like, you know, the hell I'm not, what are you talking about? (laughs) And it it turned out that day it was, I don't know if, if this was much news in Britain, but there was this, um this pair of brothers uh, called the Boston Bombers, the Tsarnia brothers. Yes, who yes. the, yeah, yeah okay. Them. Yeah, they, so they bombed the Boston Marathon. So that was the day that they um, were, were found and there was just a sort of citywide shutdown while they did this manhunt. and and and, and, and and like a, a, a policeman was actually shot and killed on MIT campus. Yeah, I mean, um, talk
0: about cinematic because they made a film of that. I saw it in cinemas.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was really shocking. And so we just decided one, you know, it didn't feel safe. Um, it, at that particular moment to get, you know, a thousand people together or 500 people together on campus uh, at one location where a person had literally been shot on campus. And, mm-hmm. you know, MIT, I don't know, I don't know if you know, but it's a very small campus. It's, it's kind of like Imperial. It's a little tiny, you know, right, techie right. place. And so it's, you know, if someone gets shot on campus, probably everyone hears it. It's, it's a very small campus. Because so we just thought, even if we thought it was safe, it was clearly in poor taste. Um, yeah, and course. so we, we, don't, we don't want to a party
0: at a time like that.
1: No, you don't. You don't. And and I mean, the the manhunt at the time was ongoing. So I remember we, we still went to Boston because um, it was actually uh, Kelly and my honeymoon. Uh, we were stopping for the show and then flying to Britain, actually. And then uh, so we just stopped by and there was this extravagant like layout of flowers and things for the, the dead policeman. And it was, it was just an unusually somber time on campus. And so just just clearly was not the time for it. Mm-hmm. And so we canceled, uh, <clears throat> which... Um, you know, I, I I can't complain about because obviously everybody else had it worse. Um, you know, we were just putting on a dorky show, and so we rescheduled for that winter. Uh, and then uh, I don't I, I guess on the basis that we had sold out previously, we got a bigger venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as I mentioned, we thought we only sold 50 seats, and now we had a thousand seat venue at Kresge Auditorium. Wow. Uh, we, yeah, yeah. And so we ended up, I think we either sold it out or were within like three tickets of selling it out. So it was just this enormous, overwhelming, shocking turnout for like such a nerdy event. And then it just, it was just one of those things. It was like magic. Uh, mm-hmm. Just everyone had such a wonderful time. I, you, like I don't know if you've been to a Bob fest, but it's just its just the sort of happiest, most joyous audience in the world. I think, in a lot of comedy shows, there's a sort of antagonistic feel to it. You know, it's sort of yeah, like yeah, make yeah. me laugh. And people uh, in the is...
0: their money and they want to be made to laugh. And right.
1: Yeah, and it's also, it's, you know, Bofest, it's nerds, and nerds are Mm. kind of, uh, and I mean this in the best way possible, they're sort of unironic people. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, they're just sort of, Happy to be there, and everyone just had such a wonderful time. And, and like, it must have been, I remember it was, it was like maybe 50 people, like a, an unusually high percent of people at the show came up to me and said, You're coming back next year, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> that's so cool. we did. Uh, and we've been there ever since. We're doing, I think, our sixth year at MIT, and then you know, we got invited to do a show in San Francisco, and we do one there. And uh, a couple other places, and then three years ago, we got invited um, by Lloyd James, who's the at the time was president of the Physics Society at, at Imperial College to mm-hmm. do one there. Um, and that show is sold out every time. And I, I would actually say that the Imperial College one is probably, it, it, with the exception perhaps of MIT, it's one of the best shows we do. It's just the, the because it's one we have London, which is so many people just yeah, period, yeah, but yeah. also from just all over the country, Imperial. Yeah, yeah, there's such a, a a draw, and then Imperial is such a nerdy place. In particular, it's just it's just great, um, and and it's especially nice because we've repeatedly been told it's very difficult to turn out that show. We get an, I think an 800 seat venue. It's very hard to turn out 800 people on a Saturday in London because you're competing with you know Broadway, maybe Patrick Stewart, Broadway, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, but knows. but like I said, it's nerds. They're not necessarily live theater people. Yeah, uh, yeah. so. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, that's Bob Fest and it's just this thing that keeps growing, and I don't know what to do about it. Uh, but we're, we'll be back in um, March 17th. We're back in uh, in London. So well, that's great. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I'll try and get tickets if there's still some available. Or if they gone on sale yet, yeah, or how does that
1: work? No, no, they'll be on sale probably in a month or two. Yeah, to give some math nerdiness, we Lloyd, who's a physics guy, bless him, has like done graphs of sales and so we, we did one year we did 35 days of sales uh and there was a nice you know typical s-shaped curve a lot of sales at the beginning yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> yeah and then a lot of sales at the end uh and then we we so we the next year we did two months out and it just it tracked perfectly it was as if you just stretched the graph yeah. so it was like there was no benefit to extending the sales period oh, no. so, so trying um, to
0: fit it to an exponential i suppose <laughs>
1: it's just like that it's literally as if in photoshop you just stretched out the curve it was so aggravating you know (laughs) but um but anyway it did sell out but it's always nerve-wracking at the end like i think the first year it was 70 percent of tickets in the last week uh, which is terrifying cool cool so i mean everyone should obviously attend
0: that and buy the tickets when they come out in a month um let's talk about soonish then so there's this book soonish 10 emerging technologies that will improve and or ruin everything And it's this wonderful book that you co-wrote with Kelly, your wife, which tries to predict the impacts of the possible impacts of future technologies. And you have this 10 emerging technologies that you guys look at, some that people have probably heard about, you know, space travel, nuclear fusion, and some that people might not think about so much, like asteroid mining and programmable matter. And there are some that are just coming into view, like nanotechnology and biotechnology as tools to manipulate the world around us. So without wanting to pick, like, pick your favorite child, do some of these get you more excited than the others? Which of the technologies surprised you?
1: Oh uh, well, those are different. Questions. Like in, in terms of excited, I'm. I'm like. I'm really into the space stuff. Mm-hmm. We're, although actually, the, the the medical stuff is really exciting too. Um, uh, I say that as someone who is a, a victim of the American healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, it, it would be really nice if we could drive down medical costs with technology. Um, although I'm, I'm not terribly sanguine about that. But but um, uh, you know the the surprising fields actually asteroid mining was fairly surprising. Mostly in that um, we had thought. And it's usually portrayed in media that the idea with asteroid mining is that you go sort of capture an asteroid and the asteroid is somehow filled with very special materials and then you bring them back and you'll get rich. Uh, and it turns out that under most economic paradigms, that's almost certainly a bad way to go. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I say that with some regret uh, because um, space enthusiasts always want to make some economic claim about the importance of going to space, uh, which outside of low Earth orbit is probably pretty questionable. Mm-hmm. Uh Um, but, um, uh, that said there, there is a, a sort of more plausible version of asteroid mining, which by the way, I, the the term asteroid mining is kind of a misnomer because it gives you the impression that you're sort of drilling down into an asteroid. Uh, and that's probably actually not what you'd be doing. Uh, there's some cases where that might be true, but you have to remember thinking about the physics of it. Uh, there's no gravity, right? Mm -hmm. So, so drilling or shoveling or whatever is not a big deal when there's gravity because, You know, Newton tells us you kind of bounce backward, but who cares because gravity is holding you in place. But on an asteroid, if you thwack it with a shovel, you might go flying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so um, and, and in addition, asteroids are often what are called rubble piles, which are just sort of agglomerations. Of uh, dust and rock uh, they're not held together together uh, very
0: well are they I remember I was reading something I think it was in another book about how they can we did a show about it where you can divert asteroids and it's actually more difficult to do it by blowing them up than you think because if you blow up a bomb next to an asteroid it doesn't necessarily deflect the whole thing it might just
1: split up the pile Right, exactly, uh, and so you can imagine if you naively said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a drill into this asteroid." And it was a rubble pile. You just fling everything everywhere, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, and and th- that's actually one of the inherent problems with asteroid mining is you kind of it, it's apparently difficult to know what you're up against. So you mm-hmm. can imagine if it's all metal, you might not want you might want something like a drill. You certainly don't want a harpoon because um, mm-hmm. then you know it might. Uh, you fling back at you or carry you off into space for, 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 for rock, you might want a harpoon, but if it's a rubble pile, you don't want something with a lot of kinetic energy. Uh, so there, you know, you might want a net or there's one proposal we read to have a sort of like a, a, a uh, an artificial apparatus that behaves kind of like a plant's root, sort of rooting itself into the, the dust, um, mm-hmm. and to, to anchor you. So you kind of have to know what you're up against. Um, <clears throat> which is apparently a bit tricky. Unfortunately, I think people have this idea that asteroids are sort of like in Star Wars. They're just sort of big potato-shaped rocks, um, and uh, it's just not the case. There's a lot of variety. And, and in addition, uh, asteroids tend to be spinning. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and there, there are a couple of reasons for that uh, that are physics-y. And I can't remember how much we got into this in the book, but for, for one thing, it's just like as not. They don't have zero angular momentum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but two... There's an effect uh, where essentially asteroids uptake energy and then emit it. I I feel like we did not get into this in the book because it's a little too dorky. Okay, that's fine. Um, You can get into it here. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, um, so there's this effect where an asteroid – takes in energy and then emits it. And that causes it to just spin up very, very, very slightly. But if you imagine it accumulating over millions of years, Mm -hmm. it adds up. So the the way I like to explain it, if you imagine you happen to have an asteroid shaped like a propeller, Mm -hmm. uh, right? And it absorbed energy and then emitted it like in every direction, you can imagine why it would spin up. Um, And uh, there's an effect. And it starts with the letter Y, but I can't remember. I think it's named after a Russian guy. And unfortunately, I can't remember it. Uh, But but, but which means that asteroids tend to... um, tend to develop spin over time which which you can imagine you know it already makes it tough to land on something that's small and spinning but then if you add in that you're in microgravity mm-hmm. it's it's even trickier still um, so so capturing an asteroid is, is quite a bit easier uh, or quite a bit harder than it might sound at first blush um and in addition uh economically thinking about it, economics, we, we refer to it as like the dream crusher of engineering projects. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's not enough to say, hey, asteroids, you, you'll often hear in media, and we, we do mention this in our book, and it's true, just to give you a sort of backdrop, you can say something like, well, in a, in a big asteroid, there's, you know, a trillion dollars worth of iron or platinum. Or, or platinum or like that. Yeah.
0: Right.
1: yeah, platinum is often mentioned. I don't know why. Um, but I mean, it is there. But like, you know, it's, it's in earth too. And that's the important thing, right? So it's like, you can say there's a trillion dollars worth of platinum, but it's, it's equally reasonable to say, like, if um, we went to the country and we dug a thousand miles deep, there'd be, you know, X trillion dollars worth of, of whatever material. And it's true. It's just not very interesting, right? Because, because it's expensive dollars
0: of gold dissolved in the sea, but you can't get at it because
1: it's so diffuse. Exactly. Yeah, the the issue is cost of getting it. And it turns out going to capture an asteroid, uh, even under extremely favorable future circumstances, is still quite expensive. Yeah. Um. So, um. Uh. And there there are other concerns too. Um. Well, but so anyway, let me get to the good side of it. Uh. You know, they, I I should say a lot of our book is I, I don't want to say pessimism, but I will say skepticism, realism. Um. Realism. Yeah, realist. I'm a realist. Um, and But we, we try to say we're optimistic skeptics. We, we want to know what the truth is, but we, we also want to go to space. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the, the, the optimistic side of it is if you ever want to build like a sort of galaxy ship, like a giant Star trek spaceship, or you just want a giant space settlement, um uh, the asteroid belt's not the worst way to go. So uh, since this is a physics podcast, let's talk about gravity wells. Yeah. Um, so we don't, we, don't, we don't get too much into this in the book, but the, the, the metaphor I like to I, I, I don't usually like analogies, but I feel like gravity as a well is a really good, really deep analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way we like to explain it when we're lecturing is if you imagine a huge open plane that is, is pocked with a small number of very deep wells, uh, in the analogy, the wells are planets uh, and the plane is, is open space. And so, and I mean, they're very far apart from each other. Let's say they're a thousand miles from each other, um, but but the the real hard part is the wells are maybe ten thousand miles deep, right? So it's like you imagine if your Earth in this analogy, you're at the bottom of the well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the really hard part, if you want to go to some other well, is not running across the plane. That's relatively easy. It's getting out of the well. In the first
0: place. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing people don't realize. Once you're in open space, everything's pretty easy. There's nothing dragging you down. So the, 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 the kind of counterintuitive case we give in the book is if you want to fling an object from Phobos or Deimos, Deimos I mean, uh, the, the moons of Mars, Ooh. it takes less energy than doing the same thing from the moon. Uh, if you want to fling from those moons to Earth, that takes less energy than flinging from Earth's moon to Earth. Right, yeah. because Earth's moon is quite large. Phobos and Deimos, are they're, they're so small they can't even keep a spherical shape. They're sort of potato shaped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the point is the the, the whole energy expenditure happens uh, when you're leaving the object, uh, going through space. There's there's basically no energy expenditure unless you want to boost your speed, or you know you lose a slight amount of energy to bumping into like you know like like the 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 minuscule amount of hydrogen floating around in, in space. Yeah, debris um, and junk uh, and things. Yeah, right, exactly. But so to go back to our analogy, suppose you want to not just go from one well to another, but you want to sort of go in style. Uh, You want to bring a lot of apparatus with you, you know, Um, you want to build a big space, I don't know, tank or big space cruiser, Um, then... If you want to do that, the only way right now uh, is you boost materials from the bottom of the well. So you, you can imagine, remember, we said the expense is getting it up. Well, now you've, you've, you've got a lot of expense because mm-hmm. you're, you're having to boost every bit of your, your cruise ship from the bottom of the well. But you can imagine if somewhere in the plane there's a big pile of junk, uh, the big pile of, say, like rocks, iron ore, what have you, then you might say, you know, it might be cheaper if we can figure out a way to use the junk. Um, mm-hmm. It's not as convenient as say boosting up a pre-built rocket ship from the factory at the bottom of the well. I'm stretching the analogy a little bit, um, but um, but if we can use the junk, it would be so much cheaper. If we can, all we'd have to boost up is one factory, and then we, if we can use the junk. Then uh, we can make a giant ship, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you really your your best hope, perhaps, of building a big Star Trekky type ship or a giant, um, I don't know, like mega hotel in space somewhere might be um, reusing that junk. The problem is then if you're never going to take it out of space, you have to be able to refine everything in it in space. And it just turns out a lot of the refining process, a lot of the industrial processes we use on Earth uh, depend on the existence of gravity. Yeah, Um, and burning stuff too. Right. Right. So there, there, um, there's a guy named John Lewis who wrote a, I think he's a geologist and he wrote a book about sort of, well, asteroid mining in general, but had a section on in general, you know, chemical processes you could substitute, but obviously that's not ideal, um, compared to just using gravity to sort things. Um, so, uh, but you know, if you could overcome that stuff, there's like 40% worth of a planet out there in the asteroids. That's, you know, if you want to build the death star, <laughs> that might be the way to go. Uh, so uh, that's, that's, the, that's the optimistic case. Again, there's not clearly an economic value in doing it, but it would be really
0: cool. You would think that future civilizations, if they're going to get out there and explore and create probes that can explore the galaxy and so on, like these mm-hmm. von Neumann self-replicating probes. Yeah, right, yeah. Out there, you have to learn how to uh, make good use of the stuff that's already escaped from Earth's gravitational potential well, I guess, rather than exactly. dreams of building a huge a massive 10 times bigger shuttle launcher than lifting it up into outer space. Exactly. One of the things that really interested me about the book is um, the nature of predicting technologies because there are, you can divide predictions into two classes, right? There's, there's people who extrapolate things that already exist, like saying Moore's law will carry on and computers will keep getting faster. And then there's some other things that are closer to science fiction technology that rely on breakthroughs that we essentially haven't anticipated yet, that we haven't started on yet, like mm-hmm. something like near light speed travel or artificial superintelligence, nanofabrication machines and it's very difficult to know the distance between where we are now and where we'll be to get these sci-fi technologies that we can imagine that don't necessarily exist and um, at the end there's this list of things that you researched that didn't make it into the book so uh, did you have a list of things that you went in wanting to research and seeing whether you know are people working on I don't know? teleportation or near light speed travel and then at the start you know you have this idea and then you talk to some people and think ah, oh, it's not so realistic were there any sort of sci-fi technologies yeah. you would have loved to include but you didn't merit entry because they weren't soon enough
1: yeah yeah so as you said at the, at the end of the book we do discuss um four chapters and then one concept which didn't make it into the book despite us putting a lot of time into them mm-hmm. um and, uh, but only, only in one case was that because it seemed implausible to us. Uh, but the, the others were, uh, we felt we couldn't explain it properly in the the, 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 amount of space we had or, and a couple other reasons, but, um, uh, yeah, we actually started with a list of 50 things. Um, and a lot of those are ones we'd love to do subsequently. Um, but so I, I I'll give you an example of a couple we thought would be interesting, but ter- we, we became convinced. Not entirely convinced that there was a real field of study there. Not that there couldn't be, but that there wasn't yet necessarily. So one that was... One that was interesting was this, like, could you redirect a hurricane or, or sort of, generally speaking, control the weather? Because mm-hmm. um, you can imagine, is especially a thing in the, the southeastern U.S., like, pretty regularly a hurricane will do, you know, billions of dollars of damage. Like, we, we actually used to live in Houston as of a year ago, and they got hit yeah, by Hurricane wow. Harvey. And I think they're still tallying up the damage. It's going to be in the billions of dollars <laughs> or, I, well, I should say 10 to the ninth dollars for, for clarity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, to the ninth amounts of dollars, uh, but um, keep it to diverse. But but yeah, so you can right, you can imagine like so the 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 sort of I, I don't want to say upside to that, but the 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 from from a calculating perspective, the upside is well, that means you've got a lot of money to work with if you can deflect it, right? So like Houston's a big city, but it's only you know maybe fifty or hundred miles across. So you if you if you could deflect the angle at which an, a hurricane approached, you know you you could. If you had a process to do that, you could spend a billion dollars and still come out ahead. I mean, assuming people were willing to coordinate resources at the government level, which at least in the U.S. is questionable. But assuming you could, uh, you know, that that could be pretty exciting. Um, and, and there are a couple of proposals we read uh, about, you know, ways to sort of suck the energy out of a hurricane, one of which was something like if you dump many, 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 many tons of, of just ice in, onto the top of the water, I guess just... I don't understand hurricane systems well enough. It's not something I researched deeply, but I guess the general idea is you're just sucking energy out of the system. A similar proposal we saw was, was some sort of system, and I don't understand how this sur- survives hurricane winds, but the idea was you sort of have a... If you imagine like a big tube that runs from the surface... To way down below where it's much cooler and much less, um, w- much less kinetic. You know, it's not moving around like the surfaces. And the idea is you sort of pump from one to the other, so you keep pumping up this cold water to the surface, and it kind of has a similar effect to the ice cubes, I guess. Um, but so we, our, our our sense was there really is not a developed field there so much like and this is kind of true of space elevators, but space elevators have been around as a concept longer. A a lot of these fields seem like they're basically developed by, you know, emeritus scientists Mm -hmm. who've like, you know, didn't want to take on the burden of doing something crazy until they were like in their Mm sixties. And so it seemed like there was a little of that with the weather control stuff, but there wasn't maybe enough for us to, to work on, even though it might be interesting. Um, Uh, There's another field, which I I thought might be interesting, but apparently doesn't even exist, which is something like ultra advanced economic forecasting, you know, like, like, uh, you know, there's talk about with with weather again, that maybe in 40 years from now, you'd you'd be able to model it really, really well. I mean, up to the limits of what chaos allows, Mm -hmm. uh, which could be really exciting. I mean, uh, uh, you know, and not to mention the the economic value of that level of forecasting, but I I think economics will probably never be there because it's a sort of self-interfering system. (laughs) You know, once you know what the forecast is, you you change your behavior. um, Yeah, I mean, uh, the difference uh, that strikes me
0: straight away is, as you say, obviously the forecast changes the behavior, but also in physics, in weather, we have the underlying equations, right? It's the Navier-Stokes equation, more or less. (laughs) And that turns out to be incredibly difficult to solve, but at least we know what it is. Whereas for economics, people would argue about, you know, what all the numbers should be in the... Uh, economic equation and you can't so you can't solve it by uh, testing things on a mini economy and sort of scaling it up and determining all the parameters yeah that's that.
1: exactly a, yeah I mean you, you yeah you 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 can create those mini economies and they're very interesting and I, I'm 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 of the view that you know economics is valuable yeah. uh, as, as a scientific field uh, but um but yeah as, as a predictive field uh it's a little trickier. And that's it's not necessarily a strike against it per se. I mean it's it's true of like evolution. It's hard to predict the future of evolution, uh, but we know it's true and we know certain things about it. Um but um but yeah, whether even with a you know very fancy supercomputer you could predict economic behavior, I'm not convinced. Um and and, and from a practical perspective, there is no <laughs> textbook talking about what'll happen then for us to 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 read. Um so that was something we we uh, mm-hmm. we we dumped There was another one other. So we, we you know, we mentioned four chapters. We cut the actually the most full chapter we cut was a chapter that was completely 100 percent done, had comics and everything. We done a chapter on advanced nuclear fission. OK. And like, we, we ended up reading reactors mostly, and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like like yeah, that sort of thing. And and we mainly ended up cutting it for space constraints, but that said, you know, our our, our final draft had 11 chapters and our, our editor basically said we need you to make some cuts and that's what we okay. cut. Um and and the main which is a little bit of a bummer because it was it's a very important thing to talk about. Yeah, uh, I think um and uh but we thought it was a couple things like one, we felt like we were going to have to bear the burden of politically justifying ourselves everywhere yeah. we went. Um, which, you know, this is supposed to be a bit more of an upbeat kind of optimistic book. Mm -hmm. Um, But two, um, it was, was, I would say it was the hardest chapter to write because it's a very well-developed technology, right? People have been building nuclear reactors of some kind or another since about 1946, Mm -hmm. I want to say, with Enrico Fermi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, you know, whereas when you talk about a space elevator, you're like, well, there's going to be some sort of counterweight in space. There's going to be some sort of cable in between. There's going to be some sort of base. We can talk about like the rough idea. With fission, you can't really do that because it already exists. So you, you kind of have to be like, well, here are different types of fuel cladding you might use. And here, you know, you might use fast neutrons or slow neutrons, and the the differences are kind of technical and, frankly, a bit boring. I mean, I, as a nerd, it, <laughs> it's interesting to me, but um, but it's very sort of nitty gritty, ticky tacky stuff. Um, I see what you mean. Fascinating stuff, but but sorry, there's there's, there's less ahead.
0: speculation and there's less things could go this right. way, and there's a bit more technical information about well, you're going to want this uh, particular type of osmium alloy for the neutron shield and things like that <laughs> exactly it's exactly that, it like might that not necessarily appeal to people who aren't uh, nuclear-, uh, I, nuclear i think so
1: it's a bit of a slog yeah and it's also you know there's this category called fourth generation nuclear reactors which sounds like oh man it's gonna be exciting when you dig in like a lot of the differences are things like we'll have better safety features yeah. uh and we'll use computers instead of analog uh readouts you know yeah. <laughs> like we'll we'll get up to the 1990s in terms of technology um and so uh so you know i i, I naively i'd seen like oh fourth generation reactors there's gonna be some crazy stuff you've never heard of and it, like from a from a physics engineering standpoint it is interesting you're going to have like two or three times the temperature which obviously creates all sorts of material mm-hmm. problems um but, you know, it's, it's again, it's not as as sexy as like we're going to shoot lasers at a rocket to, to you know, game the rocket equation a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a paradigm shift in the way we do things as well. You guys have a chapter about nuclear fusion um, and it's got one of the best yes. analogies that I've ever seen describing the barrier <laughs> for making things fuse together. I won't spoil it because people have to buy the book, but um, it's worth the cover charge for that analogy alone. I thought that was
1: brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's funny. Where I, I should say, as as a general pedagogical matter, I'm, I'm I'm sort of dubious of analogies. We don't use a lot mm-hmm. of them. That one we probably shouldn't have, but we thought it was yeah, funny. Yeah. Um, and um, we we use a few here and there where we just thought it was appropriate. But I'm kind of I, I I perhaps you're familiar with this as a physics geek. I I blame Richard Feynman for this. So Richard Feynman probably one of the greatest teachers in in the history yeah, of physics. Yeah. Um, his 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 personal lifestyle choices, notwithstanding, are, are, are a bit um, unpleasant now uh, in, in retrospect. But set that aside. Um, an amazing teacher, um, uh, uh, and um, was excellent at analogies. That was one of his skills. Like he could he could really draw an analogy. Um, and so I think there's now this thing where, sort of culturally, in the culture of physics, what you're supposed to do to demonstrate pedagogical virtuosity is to come up with analogies. Yeah. And, and I think unfortunately it can be very misleading. I have actually, i remember in particular. I had a very, a woman I thought of as an excellent chemistry teacher, but she had this analogy about like electron orbitals as rooms in a hotel. And I remember thinking like, it's really not that wildly complicated to understand mm. electron orbitals, you know, like in terms of what they are. Uh, and now I'm like trying to think about what goes on at a hotel instead of how it yeah. works. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, as a pedagogical tool, analogies, I think, are pretty overrated. There are a few sort of very deep, very strong analogies like a gravity well or like, you know, electron flow as water in pipes, I think is a, a very deep analogy. And I mean deep in the sense that you can ask the analogy questions and then get correct uh-huh, answers. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but but <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm really, I should be walking back the analogy we used in that physics chapter because it's not a, an analogy you can ask questions of, but it, we, we thought it was cute. But um but, but, so we don't use too many we we try to be a little bit careful um uh uh but i sure. <laughs> i I'm, I'm, I'm going too far afield i guess sure. i
0: mean I guess the issue is that an analogy contains it contains some of the information that you're trying to convey, but it also contains some other information that you don't right. necessarily want to convey that people might come up to it if they say like well, if yeah. it's a hotel room, what happens when the hotel's overbooked or if the hotel burns down or something like that,
1: that that's exactly yeah. what it's like that's exactly it so i will give you um you know uh, what part of why I think well, the water and pipes analogy is a really deep analogy, uh, um, is, 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 is I actually, actually have a little story about it. Um, they'll try to do quickly, which was, um, as, as any, you know, uh, physics student, you, you hear these analogies and you start wanting to break yeah. them, you know? And I remember thinking, um, I was talking to a friend, I was like, well, it's not really a good analogy because, uh, if you short out, uh, you know, uh, um, a water pipe, water's still going to go into it. It's just going to fill it up and then stop working. And that doesn't happen with electrons. And he was like, no, that's not how it works. In reality, they do fill up the gap. That's why it shorts it out. And I was like, ah, damn it. Um, And then later, this is the really cool thing to me um, as as just... uh, a person thinking about, you know, that, that thing you do when you learn a physics thing and you don't understand it, you try to think about it deeply. I was reading, this is a little far afield, but it'll come home. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a, um, an English language folk music nerd. Mm-hmm. And there's this old song from Australia called Waltzing Matilda. Um, yeah. It, it's usually referred to in, in the context of the First World War, which for, for whatever reason, it became one of the war songs, even though it has nothing to do with war. Um And there's a part where he refers to a billabong. And I didn't know, part of the joke of the song is it uses a lot of weird Australian slang. And I looked up what a billabong is. And my understanding is the the, the sense of it is a river, um, you know, rivers aren't aren't static except on maps. They sort of move around like lightning bolts. They bow out and they can actually short themselves out, Mm -hmm. right? Because a river will bow out and the two opposite ends will meet. And then you'll short out part of the river. Uh, And then what's left over is this little lake that's funny shaped. Yeah, that's what we call it
0: in English anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I, I looked it up later. Apparently it has other meanings, but but at least one of them that I found was billabong. And then I thought, oh, my God, can this apply in electricity? So I, I go to Twitter. I'm like, is there such a thing uh, as an electric billabong? <laughs> uh, and it turns out a guy actually found there There is. If you run current through a dielectric, of course, it does the same thing. It makes loops. It shorts itself out. And you get these leftover pockets of, of charge. Wow. Um, and I was like, man, what a deep analogy that you can find this obscure thing in river behavior and it still applies Um, applies to
0: the water flow. That's, that's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say a deep analogy, you can ask it really deep questions and it still gives you the right answer. (laughs) Um, and, and so on that basis, I'm, I'm generally dubious of us coming up with fresh ones because they haven't stood the test of time like that, like that one has. Yes.
0: But I mean, the one for the nuclear fusion is it's, it's
1: just funny, I think. (laughs) Okay, good, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true too it. at least as a mnemonic if, you will not forget people take uh, a little basically how it works. Up, I'm
0: sure they'll enjoy it without worrying too much about it.
1: Yeah, yeah don't don't ask that analogy any questions but uh, <laughs> but enjoy
0: there's a great Eddie Isard routine where he talks about everyone either having techno joy or techno fear that we almost have this split reaction to new technologies. And some people are kind of convinced that the mm-hmm. only way to save and improve the human race is by wholeheartedly embracing this rush towards the future in the sort of Ray Kurzweil singularity sense. And, and others are sort of convinced that the runaway train of technological progress is going to hit us and end civilization. And um, so soonish, it's got this deep sense of wonder and admiration for the technologists and the work they're doing. But also you put in trepidation. Every chapter has a concerns section where you talk about, you know, the potential downsides of the technology where they exist. And I feel like some of the people you interviewed, you could maybe sort into these groups of techno optimists and techno fearers. <laughs> like some of the people working on brain computer interfaces are pretty out there. Um, would you say that you personally yeah, oh, like yeah. sympathize more with one or other of these groups and, and why? Or does it depend on the technology?
1: Uh, I'll, I'll tell you my view of it. Um, so there's this, um, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but there's this thing we talk about. I don't know if, if you have the same word in Britain, but do you have the word gentrification? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, like when a nice old neighborhood becomes like money comes in and it changes the character of the neighborhood. Yeah, it's yada, 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 yada. To London now, all and, over London. Right, exactly, and so people don't like it, um, and I, I and um, I mean, obviously, some property owners like it, right? Mm-hmm. But like like people who live in the neighborhood, especially say the neighborhood has an interesting historical or ethnic character, tend to not like gentrification. The problem is, economically speaking, there's basically no good way to stop it. Yeah, um, it's just sort of an economic fact, and so the the, the things you would have to do to stop it. A don't stop it anyway, but but the only thing you could do would be to be very drastic. Yeah, you could like ban money from coming in, or ban rich people from appearing, or or like ban people of a certain ethnicity from coming in. It's just not. It's just not going to work. It's just something. It's almost like I, I appreciate that people don't like it, but it, it's just there is no way to stop it. It's it's an economic fact. Uh, you know, shy of of you know, crashing the country's economy. You you can't stop, you know, just neighborhoods from changing this way. Um, And it's kind of how I feel about technology. So I'll give you an example. Um, Brain-computer interfaces, right? Um, So they're pretty primitive right now. They don't do too much. They might help with some problems like locked-in syndrome, which is a thing where you can't move hardly anything uh, on your body. Uh, They might help with things like, uh, you know, um, persistent depression. Uh, Might respond well to a particular thing called deep brain stimulation, which is a a sort of brain computer interface, you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and, 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 you know, we can do stuff like we can detect certain mental states. We can use interfaces to help you move a, a robotic arm, but it's still pretty basic. We can't do. What nerds like us want, which is boost your IQ or like download or upload memories or um, or, or data or, or, or like just sort of boost your cognitive capacity, that sort of thing. We can't do that, um, but we might be able to someday. Um, and there is there's stuff we maybe can do now, which is like detect lapse of focus or boost focus, um, <clears throat> perhaps with bad consequences, but we don't know yet. Um, and so, but what's interesting about that to me is it's like so. Right now, in, in I, I only know the numbers for the U.S. In the U.S., if you poll academic elite academics, um, twenty to twenty-five percent of people will admit taking brain-enhancing drugs wow. like um, uh, you I'm know so Adderall, Modafinil. They might they might have different names. Heard anecdotally, of people taking like cocaine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Etc. Now, mind you, of course, we're all doing uh, uh, um, caffeine and alcohol, um, but, 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 you know, not, not as serious as, say, amphetamines. And, and so the, the problem, like I, I have, my view is that taking drugs is a personal choice. It's not an ethical matter per se. However, there is a kind of um, common pool resource effect, which is, well, if, you know, Bob is taking cocaine and outputs 18 papers a day. Uh, then everybody else in the field just to get a job now has to at least compete on that level. And this is this is assuming the drugs ac- actually work. It could be we're just convincing ourselves they work, but actually you're they just make uh, you know, more talk. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Or, or maybe it increases your work output. But you'll, but you'll never become you know you'll never come up with Schrodinger's equation or the modern equivalent. But you'll you'll have a high output. Yeah. But anyway, assuming they do work, there is this sort of economic effect, which is. One, um, you know, everybody else has to use it. And two, if you're not a scientist, this is a great thing, right? Mm. <laughs> because because suddenly everyone's uh, higher output. Um, so if I want there to be new, exciting medical drugs and everyone in medicine is taking cocaine, for me, that's great uh, um, because the drugs will come faster. This is, again, assuming it works. Um, and so with a brain-computer interface, you've got to imagine, well, if you have a little – Piece of surgery you can do to put a chip or whatever in that boosts your IQ twenty points. Man, that's pretty cool. Uh, uh, and if you're an academic, like, look, the, the evidence is pretty well in. If you have twenty more points IQ, you're you're probably more productive. You're probably happier. You probably attract a better mate. Uh, you're probably less likely to commit crimes. You're more pro-social. Um, I hate to, you know, I don't want to be like a bigot or, or about this, but the, you know, there's pretty robust evidence. Uh, that people who are smarter than me are better people on, on certain metrics. Um, uh, or at least, I, I don't want to say better people. I want to say, like, like let's say more economically... More societally
0: uh, useful people. people or some weird... Mechanism. Yeah, exactly, the more useful.
1: That's the, uh, the nice, that's the pleasantly ugly way to say it. Yeah. More useful people <clears throat> from an economic perspective. And so, um, and then you'd get this arms race, right? So if you can imagine physics is already quite competitive mm-hmm. and, and the people in it tend to be quite intelligent. Um, and so, but if, if one person can... You know, jump ahead by getting the the, the Einstein surgery. Now everybody's going to want to do it, it, both because of like ego, but also because of wanting to keep a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's that's I would say that's actually the nice version. Let me give you the ugly version. We read a serious proposal, um, <clears throat> which was you can imagine you work a regular job, not say like an aspirational job, just a job you do because you you need a paycheck. Uh, And, and you have a machine in your head that detects when you're lapsing in focus and potentially outputs that to your boss. Uh, And your boss says, Hey, uh, I detected that you were, you were not focusing between, you know, minutes, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, nine o'clock and 10 o'clock what gives Um, and, uh, and, and worse, you might be able to even have a little apparatus that zaps you back into focus, um, which Now the, 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 the not so bad version of that is there are some jobs where that might be reasonable, like a jet pilot or someone working a dangerous factory job. You might, you might willingly do that. Um, But, but in general, that sounds pretty dystopic to me. Uh, And so the the way I would say it is if, if I could get brain surgery, like to become Einstein, I might be willing to do that. If I could get brain surgery, so I'm like a better, um, you know, desk worker, forget it. Except economically, I might have to, if everyone else is willing to do it. Um, so to, to round it out, my point is there are certain things that even if we all don't want them, we might end up doing. Uh, so that, that's obviously an argument in favor of some sort of policy. But again, like, like as with gentrification, it, I don't know what the policy is other than saying we're going to ban any type of brain enhancement. Uh, and, and that's pretty tough because there are obviously brain enhancements you do to fix mental disorders. Uh, and there's a fuzzy line at some point. Um, and so my, my view of it is we're probably going over the cliff one way or the other. So the question is not whether it's good or bad it's how do we handle it as we fly over the cliff um, and I don't know the answer. Um, so, so that's that's the optimistic and pessimistic view of of that.
0: When you talk to people who look into things like superintelligence, they have a very similar view to this, where they're saying things like the only way that we can see there not being a superintelligence or an intelligence explosion in terms of AI is if we have an Orwellian state that just bans certain kinds of AI research forever. That's the only sort of stable equilibrium where we can stop this technological train from coming uh, off the rails, I guess, so I mean when we 're looking at the social impact of these technologies, it seems like we 're in this race right between our morality and the institutions in our society, mm-hmm. trying to keep up with the impact that the new technologies are going to have on society, and so often it seems like you know we might fail, and we might our wisdom might not match up with our intelligence and our technology. I mean, do you think the key is having people better educated about potentials and risks when we talk to about policymakers and things like that? Or is it just inevitable that civilizations have a bumpy adjustment to technological maturity and it's like this great filter and some of them make it through and others end up destroying themselves or uh, ending up in quite dystopian scenarios?
1: You know, I was was listening to an economist talk about um, the history of manufacturing and he was talking about the Industrial Revolution and I think generally, so the classic case is textile manufacturing, right? Like suddenly it used to be, you know, you do piecework, uh, an individual would take work home and over the course of a month, make one outfit. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got the Jacquard loom and you've got, uh, you know, steam engines and everything, and you can make clothes like no big deal. Um, and so the way that's usually remembered, not entirely incorrectly, is, well, we increased our consumption and it kind of all worked out. We People got other jobs. Uh, we, we all have more clothes and it's basically a better deal than it was. Um, but he made the point, um, that that's true, but there was about 30 or 50 years of economic dislocation for a lot of people, right? Because a lot of people had say left the farm for the factory. Um, and then all of a sudden the factory doesn't need so many people.
0: And they became Luddites and started smashing up the machines. Oh, oh, well, precisely.
1: Exactly. Um, and so, um, the, 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 there's an economist I like who says it this way is that, um, you know, economists tend to say, well, it's, it's always going to be better to be more productive, but that doesn't mean it's better for every individual, right? So as a society, for example, we talk about in the book, we talk about um, robot, maybe, basically robots can take could take over the job of building buildings instead of construction workers. So for you and I who have no intention to be construction workers and for society at large in terms of like GDP per capita, that's a great deal. Um, right, because we'll all be way more productive on average. But for a construction worker, it might just yeah, make your absolutely. life worse. Period. Like you're not going to recoup that. Um, uh, you you might argue maybe your your kid will have a better life, especially if you teach them, you know, do something that I didn't do to pick some other job. And and, and almost certainly your grandkids will be uh, better off. Uh, but you personally will be harmed. Um, and so I think that's probably the case with a lot of these technologies. Um, so the the policy argument as well. Um, what you can say then is. If we know like, self-driving cars are going to displace, uh, again, I don't know the numbers in Britain. I think in the US it's like something like 5 to 7% of jobs have to do with driving cars or driving yeah. vehicles of some sort.
0: And in the long term, people are saying 50% automated and all this kind of thing. So it's a very relevant debate right, right now when people are anticipating this.
1: It, it, exactly. So the, the, the economic argument we might make is, well, you know, these people are going to basically get screwed by the changing economy. What can we do to help them? And so the, the argument is you can retrain people and that's true. It, it's, I, my understanding is it has mixed results because, you know, they, you cannot predict the economy. So you might train people for a job that, you know, is just not in demand. Yeah. Um, uh, or if you say to everyone, we're going—you know—the one thing we hear in the US a lot, uh, I, I understand the UK is way advanced to us on this, but in the US, we're still divesting of coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the arguments is, well, everyone's going to be out of a job in coal, we'll retrain them to do solar. And that's maybe true, but it's not obvious if we, you just take a random person and teach them solar, they're just going to get a job right off the bat. They might, again, just be pretty screwed. And it's also, you know, in the US, for example, uh, in the state of West Virginia, that's where a lot of the coal mining jobs are. It's a state that, but for those coal jobs, is pretty impoverished. Um, And if you take away those jobs, those people maybe don't want to leave to go to Arizona to build solar panels. Yeah, it's like Um,
0: even if if you could perfectly retrain people, you're still saying that some people have to retrain and be dislocated and give up their normal way of life and have to go through this retraining where they're presumably not earning very much. So even if you give them the opportunities, there's still a huge amount of dislocation. And obviously there's an argument about whether the government is giving people enough opportunities. And well, I mean, political consequences of some of this stuff I think we're starting to see.
1: We, we are. And, and I don't know, um, you know, it, it's a weird thing because people will often say, I think correctly, like, you know uh, uh, when the automobile came, all the people who dealt with horses were out of a job. And when uh, modern manufacturing came, all the blacksmiths were out of a job and it, it sort of worked out and the, the economic argument as well, there's more money in the system yeah. for buying things. So new jobs should materialize. But, um, but you know, the, 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 with AI, as you mentioned, it, you know, it might be different. Who knows? I, I had a friend making that argument. Well, like maybe I, AI is, is is finally the time when it's going to be different because you're literally replacing a human outright. Yeah. Um you, Right. You're not. You're not replacing a particular skill. Um, but this is the thing. So, so maybe I mean, that will be different.
0: Yeah, but you, yeah, can, go ahead. you can even see. I mean, what people have always talked about is the machine will do the work of humans, and humans will live in leisure, and we'll, we'll all just go around, you know, doing whatever we want the whole time. And uh, that's been something right. that people have dreamed of since you know the early marxists i guess thought that they were noticing this same <laughs> right. economic uh, disruption but Maybe it is just the case that we'll all demand, you know, the premium services will be the ones performed by actual humans and not AIs. And we'll just all demand more of those, and everyone will still be occupied in that way.
1: I, I think that's the case. There's, there's you, you basically create what I think of as artificial scarcity. Yeah. So uh, you probably have this in, in the UK too, where, like, you know, you can buy soap, which is good soap, or you can buy, like, artisan soap made yeah. by a person locally, <laughs> which yeah. is, like, literally 50 times the price. And for some reason, you are willing to buy Make it. Hey, for some Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's chemically identical. Um, right. I, I mean, you know, maybe it's you can get an unusual scent or something, but you're buying like a chemical process that's done inefficiently, essentially. And, and so maybe we'll do something like that. Um, but yet, yeah, you know, it was, it was Lord Keynes famously said, by now we should be working four-hour days. Yeah. Um, and we are not. Um, and if anything, we're working harder uh, uh, or at least longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, but one of the other uh, things he so- said
0: is that in the long run people talk about how in the long run things will sort themselves out but he always said in the long run everyone's dead so <laughs> everyone's dead yeah
1: right exactly well it's also it, it, to, to push back a little uh, to, you know the, the way in which he Keynes was right uh, about the four hour days like so uh, like take me for example I, I i draw comics for a living that's a little unusual but but just a, as an example i can live anywhere because i my job is completely online so yeah. if i wanted to I could live a, a, a Lord Kane well not Lord Kane style lifestyle but an early 20th century style lifestyle I mean he, he was quite wealthy but like I, I could live like it was the 1920s I could have minimal electricity, no internet no television just listen to the radio for amusement um, have like three changes of clothes and indeed I could work probably a two hour day yeah, um, yeah. I would make enough money that way and I, I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Um, it's it's a little more complicated than that, but but because property prices go up, et cetera. But like, it, it might be true that if you're willing to live a tw- early 20th century style lifestyle, you could work a four hour day. It turns out that's not what most of us want. Um, I think I think the the classic mistake that I think was made there was the assumption that happiness comes from objectively considering your status. Yeah. Um, it, it it turns out happiness has a lot more to do with what the guy next door is doing. Yeah, it um, unfortunately, it, very very much so. Um, it, it's just a a, a deep fundamental human thing. I don't want to say flaw because I think it motivates a lot of progress. Um, but, but the way I like to say it is, and, and you got to think about this viscerally, would you rather be the richest person in a middle-class neighborhood or the poorest person in a rich neighborhood? And I think most people, when they, they just get a gut reaction, you'd rather be the rich person Yeah. Uh, in, in the poor, yeah. in, right? You'd rather be the richest person in, uh, in the, 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 the middle class neighborhood, even though, so to speak, objectively, you're better off being even richer, but the poorest person in a rich neighborhood. You, you know, it's just it's just how humans are. I, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm dubious about the whole, you know, lifetime of leisure thing. I, 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 I just think humans always want the most money so they can get more stuff. Uh, or whatever it is. Or, or they can even just say, I have more money, whatever it is. Um, yeah. I mean, we can think of some examples uh, it, of
0: people who are like that, right? Who have every possible convenience that they could want, and yet still somehow <laughs> seem driven to attain other things. <laughs>
1: it, isn't it weird? I, I was talking to a friend of mine in finance, and I was like, could you explain to me how, like, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I could work less, but I choose not to. But like, if I had $100 million, like I was a big finance guy in in, in on Wall Street, like What's their motivation to keep yeah. working? Like, I understand if I only had, say, $100,000 in the bank, I'd have to keep working. That wouldn't be, like, retire-forever money. No. But if I had $100 million, you could not only stop working, but you could, like, you could just put it in an investment and you'd still make more money than most people make yearly. You could just live out your life and do nothing all the time. Or, or, or again, like, devote your life to a sort of, like, Keynesian philosophical to see whatever it is you
0: want, read your books, go to the theater, that kind right. of Right,
1: and, and yet people keep working in finance, which seems to be rather dreary, uh, but he said yeah. it's just, you know... There's this sort of motivation to be the best, uh, and 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 at least to an extent in that field, the best is the person with the most money. Yeah. Um, well, I guess
0: you know if they were the kind of people who were going to be happy at some point and quit, they probably wouldn't be where they are in the uh, right hierarchy. Of I think that's correct. Yeah. People. Yeah.
1: Exa- that's <laughs> that's exactly it. Uh, that's exactly it. So I don't know. Humans are 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 are. We're, we're in, in a way sort of alien to ourselves. We don't understand our own motivations well. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of the questions we ask about why we do things depend on a nice sort of rosy view of what we think we are. Absolutely. Uh, and you're looking behind
0: the curtain when you do that. So if we could just talk a little <laughs> yeah. bit about one of the particular topics in the book. Um, one yeah. of them I think that with Elon Musk and SpaceX is generating a lot of interest at the moment. Um, it's spaceflight. And in previous and future episodes of this show, we've talked about some of the more exotic ideas for interstellar travel. Like, there was this sunshot project that I think is still going on where probes are accelerated by pulse lasers. And then you can do things that are a little bit more on the physics side, like... um, where you do some calculations on a piece of paper and don't think too much about the details. And then you can imagine (laughs) having an antimatter drive and something like that. But for moving around inside our solar system, you don't necessarily need anything quite like that. It's an immense engineering challenge, but it's one that people are giving this serious thought to. So, I mean, what are the kind of what's the current cutting edge of the field in terms of going to space? The problems with going to space, given that it took eight years from the first person in space to the first person on the moon. Reasonable extrapolation would say we have a moon base, but of course that's not how it works. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah,
1: uh, so let me yeah let, let, me, let me take a little of the glamour off of Apollo and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the cutting edge. So like okay. the Apollo program, uh, I, I hate to bring economics into this again, but again, it's the dream crusher, right? So at the height of Apollo... It was eating that NASA, which was mostly doing Apollo at the time, was eating, I think, 4.4% of the U.S. discretionary budget, which is a colossal amount of money. It's it's, yeah. it's substantially more than we as a percentage spend now on all of our research spending. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, in absolute numbers, we um, we spend more. But a good way to say it is, we, you know, obviously, the U.S. economy is quite a bit larger than it was in 1969. Mm-hmm. Um but we spent twice as much in real dollars in the late 60s as we do now on all of NASA. We spent that wow. much on Apollo. Um, it was a, a colossal, insane amount of money to get uh, a couple guys to run around on the moon. And I'm <laughs> not against it. I think it's amazing. Um, but the, the way I think, I think the proper lens on Apollo is that it was kind of like, um, if you can imagine someone discovered the steam engine in ancient Rome, it's kind of like that. We, we kind of got to peek ahead yeah. for a second um uh, because of a confluence of very weird events because of like the the you know the fact that Werner von Braun got all this money for the Nazis to make rockets to bomb London yeah. and then we stole him out of the US and gave him even more money and then there was this thing called the Cold War where we wanted to show up the Soviets yeah. and then incredible I understand there was a conversation in which Kennedy was just kind of like can we do something that would be kind of cool uh, and then they kind of just settle on the moon. I mean, it, the, the confluence of crazy things that led to uh, uh, Neil Armstrong jumping out of that little lander is 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 mind-boggling. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's I think really as mind-boggling as the idea of I, I don't know someone in say medieval times developing the steam engine. Uh, uh, it's it's just it's 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 a thing out of time. It's it's in some alternate universe. It's someone's writing an alternate history about that time we got. The moon landing of the Mm -hmm. Um, sixties—it should not have happened. And an economically dispassionate person uh, would have said, when Apollo was happening, "They're not going to let us do this again, too many more times." Yeah. Um, So, uh, because there's no money in 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 the moon, Uh, I I, I, that's that's the the glamour I want to take off of this. There's there's no obvious reason, economically speaking, to build a space base. It doesn't. You know, it's not going to make your house bigger. It's not going to make your food better. It's not going to make you more productive at work. It's just going to make you happy, uh, right. which who cares, right? <laughs> um, it doesn't affect GDP. Um, so, um, so that's that's so. So when you want to say like, well, hey, we started kind of doing space stuff in the late fifties. We're in the moon by the late sixties. How come it's not Star Trek now? Uh, and that's the reason uh, is is because there wasn't a market. There, there's no if if the moon had been covered in uh, you know, antimatter that we could bring home
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, or some like, I don't know, boxes of muons or something. Yeah. Um, some sort some of exotic material then. Yeah. But and, and the fact of the matter is that it has the same periodic table as earth does. Yeah. Mm. Um, So, And let me just say, because there's probably some listener for your show who's saying, but it's loaded with helium-3, which is, I'm sorry, a a total BS argument. Uh, So there's this idea (laughs) you'll use helium-3 to to, to make fusion reactions at home. There's no serious proposal for a helium-3-based fusion reactor. All all serious proposals for fusion reactors require uh, deuterium and tritium, maybe boron, uh, uh, but not... Yeah. Yeah. They're using tritium and and deuterium and, and, you know, regular old hydrogen. So it's it's just, it's, it's, it's a bogus argument. And and again, you know, you have to compare it to the cost of doing stuff down on earth. Not, you know, it's a little bit pricey to go to the moon and bring stuff back. Um, So anyway, let me talk about the cutting edge though, about how we might change that a little bit. Maybe. maybe. (laughs) Uh, So let me, yeah. So that was the, the, the pessimism part. Let me give you the optimism. Um, So uh, reusable rockets, SpaceX can reuse part of a rocket. Um, So, For listeners who don't know, if you look at a rocket, you're not really looking at one rocket. You're kind of looking at three rockets. You're looking at a big one, a medium one, and a small one stacked on top of each other. And you kind of go up, and then you dump the first one, then you dump the second one, and then you dump the third one as you dump your payload. And why do you do this? Well, because once you burn up all the fuel in the first rocket, you're just carrying around a big hunk of metal, um, so you drop it. So it's not slowing you down anymore. Um, and so what SpaceX has done is they've landed that first stage, the first big hunk, which is pretty exciting because it's, it's the major part of the rocket. Um, but so the question you might have is why bother? Um, so the reason is this, when you look at a rocket, like sitting on the pad about to launch, it's 80% propellant by mass, 80%. Um, and then another 16 to 17% um, is the actual machine, the rocket. Uh, and then the stuff that's actually going to space is three and a half percent. That's why a lot of these other solutions to to rocket launch are very tantalizing. Rocket launching is, is in a certain sense, quite inefficient. Only a little bit of stuff goes to space after you built this giant machine. Um, uh, But from an economic perspective, the fuel, even though it's the bulk of the mass, is negligible cost-wise. So a super cheap low-Earth orbit rocket launch is going to run you, say, $60, $70 million, um, whereas the fuel is a mere, say, a $1 million or less. Uh, I'm sorry. The propellant uh, you get you get in trouble if you don't save fuel. That's not quite yeah. right. Um, <clears throat> the stuff that gets burned up on the way up mm-hmm. costs very little. Um, so you can imagine it's sort of like. Um, if, if every time you took an airplane flight from uh, London to Los Angeles, um, instead of just landing, you jumped out of the plane and exploded the, uh, the, the airplane, uh, the tickets would cost quite a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> and that's essentially how rockets work. Yeah, right. So that's how rockets work right now. So the idea of reusable rockets is to kind of get it over into um, airplane land, right? You go up, uh, you expend your propellant, you dump your stuff, uh, your cargo, and then you come right back. Um, So you imagine if, if you're really only paying for fuel, staff, and refurbishment... Um, you might be able to knock down the cost. I think Elon Musk said ninety percent, uh, but if you multiply that by the Elon Musk conversion factor, <laughs> uh, I think his own spokespeople actually said something like forty, thirty, forty yeah. percent. But that's yeah. huge, right? That's enormous. That's it's very big. That's, that's very big. Uh, and 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 he, I think he's right to say in the long term it could be ninety, ninety-five percent if you can recover all three stages. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing they've talked about doing. But uh, that's quite a dance, right, to recover all three parts. Um, and it, it also they 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 are now sending up rockets that are reused. Um, uh, but they have not released the cost of refurbishment. You know, presumably that cost comes down. Um, but but the thing that you know, an airplane is going a measly you know five hundred something miles per hour. Uh, you'll forgive me for not using kilometers. Awesome. Um, uh, uh, but but uh, you know, a, a rocket is going like Mach twenty. Uh, so obviously, it's quite a bit more um, wear and tear. Let's say. Um, but if you could do it, that's huge. That you know, if you knock down the price 95, you now it's like regular companies can go to space. And uh, the way I like to think about it, the more romantic way to say it is if you imagine any space mission you're excited about, multiply it by say two or three, uh, not by 20 because you know a big part of the cost is building the actual thing that's going out to say an asteroid or to the moon. But multiply it by two or three. So you know Apollo instead of three guys maybe is 10 guys. I'm um, going to the moon, and so instead of like a couple ultra trained astronauts, you're sending along a geologist, yeah, yeah. Um and um, I don't maybe uh, um, a literary guy, I don't to write down his feelings. Like I, I to me, that's exciting. But they should maybe. have sent a poet. Yeah, send a poet. I mean, how cool <laughs> would that be? Um, you know, send send send, you know, uh, send Charles Darwin, so to speak, right? Uh, like, do you used yeah. to be able to do on a boat? Um, uh, so that's that's kind of the most optimistic look at short term dropping the cost of space launch. Um, there is. I should say a, a pretty big snag, which is uh, my understanding is burning rocket fuel is pretty environmentally nasty. Uh, it doesn't matter because we don't do that. Yeah, when we want you do it to. in the
0: upper atmosphere as well.
1: <laughs> right, but, you know, exactly. And, and so if you start um, if you start doing it on the regular, on the cheap, uh, that that becomes more of a problem. Uh, which it's not really now because they're pretty rare. They're very expensive. But once the cost is down, um, it, it's similar to airplanes. When there weren't many airplanes, it wasn't a big deal. Now it's it's you know a pretty environmentally nasty thing we do by by mm-hmm. running airplanes all day long. Um, so that's something that will have to be considered, uh, but but it, in terms of price, it's quite exciting. Um, wh- whether that means mm-hmm. going to space is a good economic choice is is a, a, a sort of deeper question, and, and I don't know the answer to it. Absolutely. Just before we finish up,
0: I wanted to talk about the space elevator idea. Yeah. Um, because I remember having to solve an exam question once that involved trying to work out the tension in the rope for a geostationary <laughs> space elevator. Um, and I'd never even seen the concept before, so I can tell you that that exam question didn't go so well. But Ooh, aside from that, yeah. Um, so, um, would you like to explain to the audience what is this concept behind a space elevator? What would yeah, you do?
1: okay. So, and what's the
0: material science side of it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, if you, if you want to visualize a space elevator, elevator, imagine you are. Um, I guess in Britain you'd say a space lift. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we can stick with the American. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll get it wrong anyway. Um, so you imagine you're in a boat and you're going out in the ocean. You see something that looks kind of like an oil rig maybe, uh, only it's probably quite a heavily defended oil rig. Um, and then up from the top of it extends this sort of ribbon, um, which you don't see until you're quite close because it's very thin and, and rather small. And it extends all the way up into... Um, into the sky like it's the old rope trick. Uh, it just keeps going till you can't see it anymore. And in fact, if you could see it, uh, it goes probably something like 100,000 kilometers out into space um, where it attaches to a counterweight, um, which is, is perhaps a, a captured asteroid, but it could be made of just about anything, but a captured asteroid is probably the way to go. Um, And the reason you have that counterweight to be a little physics-y is to make sure the system's um, center of mass is in geosynchronous orbit so it doesn't wrap around the Earth, because, you know, that would be embarrassing. Yeah, that would be bad. Uh, Yeah. uh, And um, and, uh, I should say that's what you might call the classic version. There are all sorts of other ways to do it, but that's the basic idea. Um, And then you have a little... um, car that runs up the cable, just climbs the cable and goes up to um, wherever you want it. It can drop in low earth orbit, geosynchronous, or even uh, a higher up orbit to go into deep space. Um, And you might say, why do we want this? Well, it goes back to what we said earlier about fuel, right? So um, the way we say it is, is, so um, imagine you want to drive from Alaska to Buenos Aires uh, and you have two choices. One is you stop um, to fuel up uh, whenever you're low on fuel, uh, you know, as we you know, do normally, uh, or you start with every drop of fuel you're ever going to use on the trip. Um, well, intuitively you'd say to yourself, well, I want to, to gas up uh, regularly. I want to fuel up regularly. Um, the reason is, and if, if you're a little physics-y, you can think about the calculus of this. Um, if you start with all the fuel you're ever going to use, um, you're going to end up with way more total fuel. And the reason is, it's easy to think about it if you, if you think about edge cases. So um, if you imagine the edge case where a Magic Pixie drops a drop of, uh, of, of fuel into your your tank uh, every time you need it, all the energy from that fuel is going to moving the vehicle, you, and your luggage. Um, yeah. If you have to start with all the fuel you're ever going to use, most of the fuel, especially right at the beginning, is going to moving this gargantuan amount of fuel you're just going to use later. Um, yeah, so, so the way that falls out is you're using way more fuel, fuel total and you're, you're, your car is going to end up looking like the, the, the luggage part is like a little tick on the dog, right? It's it's this giant tanker of fuel you're taking with a little tiny bit of luggage. And that's basically, so to speak, what a rocket looks like. If you could um, uh, uh, gas up regularly, uh, fuel up regularly on the way up, you know, you can imagine you'd save a lot, but th- there's no way to do that with a rocket. You can't just pause for a minute to put in more propellant. Um but if you had a space elevator and you're climbing the cable, you, you kind of approach that magic pixie paradigm I was talking about because you're probably beaming fuel uh, or beaming energy to use to do the climb. Um, so it means that everything you're boosting is cargo. Uh, so it becomes quite a bit more efficient. And, and so that's part of why a, a conservative estimate, um, I mean, as much to the extent you can be conservative when talking about a space elevator that we read puts the price down about 95 to 99 percent um, because you're, you're just boosting cargo all the time. Um, and uh, you're not having to destroy anything. It's just it, it makes the process sort of pleasantly boring. Um, you just sort of <laughs> lift the stuff that's going to space and then you drop it in whatever orbit you want. Um, and uh, so that's really exciting. So what's the problem? Uh, the problem is what we call in the book, the middle part, uh, that middle 100,000 kilometers is, is, is really tricky. So if you imagine yeah. everything else involved is, yeah. is, is, is we don't necessarily know how to do it, but it's kind of a pretty clear engineering problem, like building the climber, that might be tricky. Build, you know Capturing an asteroid, that might be tricky. Um, but the, the cable is the part where we really don't know how to do it. Um, and since this is a physics podcast, I'll give the more detailed explanation um, as quickly as possible. Uh, uh-huh. So there's this concept called specific strength um, which is um strength in the sense of how much force you can put on it before it breaks divided by density um and the way i like to explain that is um is it's like superman's hair uh right <laughs> it needs to not just be quite strong it needs to also be very lightweight and the yeah. reason it needs to be lightweight yeah. um is so it doesn't yank itself apart as you were calculating the rope tension uh for your there's, physics there's problem. Pressure
0: from the upper half of the rope that's pushing down on the bottom
1: thing exactly and for a physics student in particular it's a very counterintuitive problem because you're used to saying well the rope weighs nothing yeah. um uh but but the way i like to explain that is if if you're up on a cliff and your friend falls 10 feet down or uh three three meters down um <laughs> and, and you're holding the rope the main thing you care about is how much your friend weighs like have they been on a good diet lately yeah. um but <laughs> if if the cable falls down a cliff that's uh you know uh, a 1,000 kilometers long and they're at the bottom, the only thing you care about is how much the rope weighs per meter because yeah. um, uh, it's it's going to pull itself apart. It'll and it's the same with the apart. cable, right? You've got so much cable, you really have to worry about how much it weighs per unit of length. Um, mm-hmm. And so you need a material that's not just super strong, it's quite lightweight. So people will say, well, what about Kevlar? Kevlar is about one twentieth of the quantity of specific strength you need. So what can we use, you ask? Well, there's a candidate material called carbon nanotubes uh, which is, um, if, if, well, you probably your listeners are familiar with graphene, which is, of course, going to fix everything everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. graphene, if you want to visualize it, imagine a honeycomb of carbon atoms and just one atom thick, and it's quite strong and has other neat features. But anyway, if you, if you fold it up into the shape of a straw, you connect the, the two ends of the hexagonal plane. Uh, you get these straws, um, these 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 tubes, uh, and they, it turns out they have a, a wildly high specific strength. Perhaps not high enough, I should add, but high enough to be potentially the right material. Um, and the problem is, the the longest ones we can make are about about uh, uh, one and a half meters. Um, which is is not quite a uh, hundred thousand kilometers, not quite um, and and, and to...
0: order of magnitude. No, any
1: point matching though. <laughs> no, no. And to give you a sense of how hard the problem is, you have to imagine you're literally making a molecule that's a hundred thousand kilometers long. It's a very hard yeah, problem. Yeah. Um, and, and the the other thing to realize is that any any error along the line uh, lowers your specific strength at a particular point, and yeah, it's uh, as it as increases as it's weak, right? It, precisely. And so, uh, yeah, any, anywhere it breaks, whoever is in the cable car is going to have a bad day. Yeah. Um, and, um, and whoever you know, whoever funded the project is going to be a little upset. A really <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And so the, it also answers the question you might ask, which is could we weave together little nanotubes? And the answer is no, because now you're lowering the specific strength and introducing errors.
0: Yeah, the weave in between is, the, is now the weakest point, and that has to be st- strong enough to lift the whole cable. I mean, I got the sense when I was reading exactly. this part of the book that Almost part of this issue was that there was no motivation to make earthly materials this strong for any earthly reason. And that's going to be a big problem. It's got to be very specifically designed for this stuff. You can't piggyback on someone else's R&D budget.
1: Right. So the so thing I like to mention in, in the context of that is like, so, you know, Tesla and another, a number of other companies, but Tesla is the popular company mm-hmm. is, um, is putting out electric cars. Well, part of why they can do that is because there was all this money and R and D put into making better, smaller uh, lithium ion batteries. And it wasn't with cars in mind, right. It was, it was for gadgets. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Specifically phones and laptops, but you know, yeah. Gadgets in general, just, you know, having a little dense onboard power source that's relatively safe. Um, a lot of money was put into that. And, and the, the, the really important thing to note is not just the, that there was a market for it, but that there was a market for slight improvements, right? Yeah. So if you're choosing between two phones and one has like 5 or 10% better battery, battery life, that, that is a, a decision point. That might change your mind. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the same with computers. We're really stupid about this. We'll, we'll buy a 5% better computer. We'll junk an old one. We'll buy like the new iPhone that's just slightly better and it costs a fortune. But we'll do it because we want the slightly better specs. Um, and so it's like that with Tesla, it's like these, these batteries got better and better and better until it got to where you could take a tiny little roadster and pack it full of them. And you could, you could have an electric car that was actually a halfway decent electric car. Um, and so, um, with space elevators, you need some industry to do that for long carbon nanotubes and it doesn't exist yet. Uh, there, there's, you know, there, there, there's obviously a market for nanotubes, um, co- composite materials, uh, need nanotubes. Um, but there is not a market, uh, for ever longer, um, uh, uh carbon nanotubes. So, um, Yeah, and and there's not a market for iterative success, Yeah, uh, iterative increases. And this is what you really need as a
0: technologist, isn't it? Is a a market for these stepping stones along the way to where you want to get to. It reminds me, I worked over the summer for a guy who was uh, looking to make these humanoid robots. And I spent a lot of time asking the question, you know, why don't we have humanoid robots? And the answer is actually, like, a humanoid robot that can't do things better than a human is almost worthless. You know, there's there's no need to have a very slow-moving thing. It's a novelty like ASIMO, but, you know, ASIMO is not being employed to do anything uh, particularly important. And so
1: you have this issue of
0: profitability along the way.
1: Right. We we actually found, like, the most disappointing paper ever was about... um, uh, uh, and then I guess I should wrap this up but um, we, we did this chapter I mentioned earlier about um, uh, robots taking over construction yeah. work and so you might imagine uh, the the ground zero for that is Japan not just because Japan has this weird robot thing but like also the, uh, aging the median age in Japan is yeah. right it, the median age I think is like 46 or 47 For I, I I don't know what it is in the UK in the US I think it's like 38 yeah. uh, Japan is, is the oldest nation in the world uh, on a median basis um, and so clearly you need more workers and they're not coming fast. Mm -hmm. And so they're very interested in robots. Um, And there's this paper, apparently in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of excitement about this idea of construction robots. And we found this paper that said, essentially it was a wash. Like you hire a construction bot to help with whatever. And by the time, I guess the human has figured out how to work it and has dealt with all the problems of dealing with a robot, uh, you haven't come out ahead. Um, So it's like, you've gone to all this effort and you, you, you just get nothing. It's just, like a human construction worker knows how to do a lot of really complicated jobs from a computing perspective. I mean, they don't maybe look complicated, Mm. you know, to you, but even something as simple as putting mortar on a brick is actually in terms of like a visuo, visuospatial spatial task. Yeah. There's this section in the book where they have to deal with the mortar gradually hardening and putting
0: things on. And, you know, I didn't appreciate that. I must admit I was a bit chauvinistic about it, but it's actually a very detailed.
1: Yeah, it's true. Well, yeah, well it's the, the specific way we like to talk about it is it's not just that it's detailed. It's that it's, it's, the rule set you would use to determine what the hell's going on with your mortar is quite involved as opposed to, so the example we use in the book is like, uh, there's this concept called Moravec's paradox named after this um, researcher named Hans Moravec. Uh, And and the idea is like, suppose you want to multiply two gigantic numbers by each other. Like a computer is really good at that and you're really bad at it. It might literally take you a week if the numbers are big enough and you probably just made so many errors. Right. Yeah. and, but, but you can intuitively realize, even if you know nothing about math, that if you had to explain it to a computer, how to do it, the, the amount of things you'd have to explain is pretty narrow. You'd just be like, well, you take this number do repeated addition with that number. And then if you have any overflow into the next digit, add it to the, the digit that follows, blah, blah, blah. It's a pretty, pretty simple rule set. Uh, even if, even if offhand, you don't know how to explain it, it's, you, you can recognize it's pretty simple. Yeah.
0: And I'll go with them. you to explain.
1: Right. Exactly. And if you want to explain to a computer, like. Tell me whether, um, you know, something is an apple or a pear, which a human can do pretty easily. Yeah. Um, even like a 10-year-old can do re- really quite easily, probably by just looking. Um, it, that's a pretty hard thing to explain to a computer. Um, what do you uh, say, or you, you want say to say, like, green, here's a It's like, well, that's an apple and a pear, so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and so, um, or even tougher is something like, explain whether this picture is cute or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and that's cute? something that, again, a human can do pretty readily. Um, or even we, I think we mentioned in the book, like explain whether this photo, which, which part of this photo is up, um, yeah. which, you know, a computer, whether can do, right. Uh, it's pretty tricky. And, and the thing to realize is when you look at a photo and you realize, Oh, you know, it's a kid hanging upside down in a swing. So even though her face is upside down, the picture is right side up.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, the, the amount of, rules you might use to come to that conclusion is pretty huge it might be like well is her hair floating up high in a certain fashion or like how is her dress laying on top of her or you know is she hanging on a swing <laughs> you know what i mean uh, there's, there's a whole lot of knowledge you have about the real world that you bring to bear on that question yeah
0: that's very difficult to express algorithmically
1: Oh, no, this is part of the problem
0: that people have when they're talking about having a super intelligent AI, is there's all kinds of intuitive concepts that we can think about, like human happiness and the right thing to do and morality and so on. But when it comes to actually getting a formalized definition for those to put into a robot, how on earth do you do that? You know, and that's what a big load of philosophers here at Oxford and in other places are thinking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a harder problem than anybody anticipated, I think, um, yeah. which makes it fun. And, and I get, it's part of what Helps you sleep at night when you worry about evil monster AIs, yeah. but um, but uh, it is quite a hard problem.
0: Yeah, they're like Daleks trying to get up the stairs with more of X paradoxes.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not it's Be not simple. happening tomorrow. I don't it's not happening
0: straight away. Okay, well, this has been an amazing interview. Thanks very much. The last thing I want to say is just the classic interview questions. So you guys have this book soonish that everyone should buy, and obviously Saturday morning breakfast cereal is going on until the end of time. Um, but are you guys yes. working on any new projects that we should look out for, or just sort of recovering from this mammoth book effort?
1: <laughs> oh well, both. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know um, what the next book I do with Kelly is. Um, if this this one you can imagine took a while to research. Um, yeah. So if we, if we did another like this, it would take a while. Um, I am probably uh, putting, or definitely, I, I will say, putting out another SMBc collection at the end of 2018, and another another mini book. We we the new thing is I, I abridge. You know, we abridged all the Bible <laughs> into about three thousand words. We abridged all of science into about three thousand words, and we'll be doing another one uh, the end of this year I'm working on now. Uh, and then I am at uh, something a little more offbeat in, um, so you can imagine the, uh, political climate in the U S right now is a little, um, Febrile. xenophobic. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, uh, well, yeah. Among other things. Yes. Uh, it's not great. Um, so I'm working with an economist on a book, uh, a nonfiction graphic novel that's sort of laying out the case for increased immigration, uh, probably of interest in the UK, uh, yeah, whether you're for or against, um, so I'm, I'm actually mostly illustrating, but uh, I am I have a bit of a voice in it, um, and uh, and obviously I, I get to pick visuals and that sort of thing. So that's a, a bit of a new direction for me, I guess. I'm not really a political person uh, in terms of my like creative output, but I just thought, um, you know, well, there's sometimes we the time. need to do something, right? I think so. I I, I get the sense uh, certainly over here the the um, and I, I, again I'm not I'm not I'm not going to say anything about the politics, but I think a, a lot of people left and right felt like something needed to change after the last election yeah. um, and so uh, I and I'm, I suppose I felt a little sick of um, just whining on Twitter about things so I'm trying to do something a little more constructive.
0: And you know what could be better than highlighting the contribution of groups of people to society? That sounds like a great thing to do to me.
1: I think so. Immigrants are a really good deal. It's unfortunately un- under-recognized. Yeah. Um, in, like all, all, all the stats are in favor of immigrants. The only immigrants who don't net contribute to the economy are like no high school education 80-year-olds who come. They're a burden, fine, but pretty much everyone else is a net positive uh, uh, in in just about every way. Um, It was easy. I'm getting into the politics, I guess. But anyway, that's what I'm up to. Uh, And then among some other projects that are a little bit too um, tenuous. I I think
0: everyone can uh, follow you on Twitter on Zach Wiener and I'm sure they'll get lots of uh, updates on this sort of uh, project as it goes on. So I just want to say finally, thank you very much for coming on the show. You've been wonderful
1: yeah thanks thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun
0: so we had to wrap up somewhere although i felt like we probably could have gone on for hours on each individual subchapter of the book because it's so densely packed with material interviews with technologists and scientists and zach and kelly evidently did a great deal of hard research which makes it a wonderful guide to the state of so many of these technologies and you know before i'd read it some of them i'd never even heard of and it was just amazing to see some of the work that people are doing at the moment 3d printed houses for example that's something you want to read about so pick up a copy of Soonish. Uh, you can keep up with the Wienersmiths in many ways. On Twitter, he is Zach Wiener, and she is Shmu, that is F-U-S-C-H-M-U. I don't know how you pronounce that properly. And they're both active science communicators and general all-around awesome people. And then there's all the stuff you can do for me. So our series of episodes on the end of the world, it continues. We've covered so far earthquakes, super volcanoes, things that go booming out outer space, overpopulation, running out of fossil fuels, natural and genetically engineered pandemics, and artificial intelligence. Which means that of our top ten, we're moving into the top two. You can find all of these episodes and all future episodes at www.physicspodcast.com or search on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, for physical attraction, you'll find us there. You can follow the show on Twitter at PhysicsPod, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, and plenty of places you don't. The next few episodes, just to give you an idea of the plan, will be interview episodes. We're talking to Britt Ray about CRISPR, de-extinction, and biotechnology, and Stuart Armstrong, a researcher into AI safety here at Oxford. And then we'll head into our top two apocalypse scenarios next year, and then it's back to physics. So on that subject, we've got shows on Newton, particle physics, superconductors, all kinds of wonderful stuff lined up for 2018. I'm going to keep the show going for a while. If there's a show you'd like to hear, or a guest you'd like to hear from, or comments, questions, concerns, you can go to physicspodcast.com, contact me using the form there, I read all of those. There's also the option to throw us a couple of dollars if you enjoyed the show and want to help us keep the lights on. Thanks to Zach for coming on the show, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time. Stay safe.